0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover of yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a legend in music, not just hip hop, music, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the most pioneering rap groups in history and author of this book, Strider Compton, My Untold Story, which is a great read. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. So ladies and gentlemen, if I was somewhere in an audience, I'll tell you guys, stand up on your feet. Give this man his flowers from world-class wrecking crew, NWA, solo projects, author, and most importantly, man of God. Ladies and gentlemen, DJ Yella. Thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover, sir, and it's an honor.
1: What's up? What's
0: up? <laughs> I appreciate what's you coming going
1: on. on. Yes, sir. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's an honor for me to be here. So
0: yes, sir. Every day is alive love, is a blessing. So let's go ahead and hop right into it. So when did you first fall in love with music, and do you remember your first paying DJ
1: gig? Um, I remember my first DJ gig. I wasn't paying. I did a um. My brother got married. And I did the reception, and I must have been. In junior high school, maybe seven, eight, or nine, something like that. And I was I, I didn't know I was DJing at the time, but it was eight track tapes. The night before I would cue the best song on the, you know, each album. And then during the reception, I would just pop one in, play it, pull it out, put another one in. That was DJing, but at the time I didn't know really what it was. But I mean, I guess it was an early age, but I'd never wanted to be a dj or anything like that it that didn't it didn't do nothing for me you know it just it's just something that happened it was meant to happen but it was something that happened
0: mm-hmm. so what was your original aspiration since you said that dj kind of fell into your lap
1: um i wanted to be a fireman i went to a fire station one time i think i was in high school i went to a fire station or just mm-hmm. got out of high school and I wanted to find out information about being a fireman. And once they told me you had to go to the county and all this, I said, okay, my fireman days is over. I thought I could get an application right there, but it don't work that way. So that was done. Right. And you
0: mentioned your first DJing gig. It was with 8-Tracks. What was your first equipment
1: setup? Um, well, I guess it would be when I started DJing, At the club, even after dark, in the Wrecking Crew days. In the beginning of the Wrecking Crew days. It was, you know, regular two turntables, mixer. Yeah, it was just, that was the first paid gig, was DJing in the club. Now,
0: did you use belt drive
1: turntables? I think when I first got there, it might have been belt, but I don't remember it being belt. I remember we went to 1200s. But I think maybe the early days was kind of bell drops.
0: Okay. So this was back in
1: the late 70s, early
0: 80s. So let me set the stage. No,
1: this, this was uh like 83, 82, 83. 80. 82, 83. Yeah, about 82.
0: Yeah. Okay. So around that time period, a lot of rap was primarily coming out of New York. And this was pre-internet. So with everything taking so slow to come to the West Coast, how were you? how you all able to take your specific flavor on the West coast and add it to what was coming out of New York before the West coast really took off.
1: Um, well, you know, it was all New York, you know, and you get the records, you know, like I said, no internet, you go to the record store and see what's the hottest, whatever the latest stuff. And then I remember run DMC came to our club the eve after dark. This was after, Dre got there. I had been DJing two or three years before Dre came. Dre came. We met up. Then we seen Run DMC do a show. Their first, first show in LA. And me and Dre on the side of the state, we looked at it, and it was a 10-minute show. You know, they just rapped and boom. They ended the mic, like, you know, putting the hands, and that was it. And me and Dre looked at each other. That's, that's all it takes to do music is that. You know, and that was the beginning of our music career, I guess. That's when we started doing music. Right. And I can remember listening to a lot of those early West
0: Coast records, like World Class Record Crew, Uncle Jam's Army, LA Dream Team, Egyptian Lover. A lot of those records were very high energy, very techno influences. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's more like the uh craft work. Think about it. Soul Sonic Force, their first song was one 100, 128 beats per you know, minutes. So it was, the fast, it was the craft work. All that came from craft work. And I don't know why. That's just, we chose that. You know, the record crew. I don't know why Uncle Jam's Army did that. But it was just, that was the West Coast at the time was fast techno music. And that's what we made, you know. It was cool for a while, but that's what we did. Right. And one of the things that you mentioned in your book Like I
0: said, at the top of the intro, we're going to talk about the book. So if you haven't read the book, you might want to fast forward past the part where we talk about the book. You mentioned (laughs) Uncle Jam and how there were a rival crew to World Class Wrecking Crew. In order for you to get down with World Class Wrecking Crew, you had to go rip down their poster when they were promoting their party, right?
1: Yeah, I had to put what you call the rip on it. I had never heard of that. And he told me. So I went around and put a rip on everybody's poster. Cut you cut the date and the place off the bottom of the poster. So all their name is just on the top is what left. So nobody could see where to go to the dance. You know, so I did that and I guess it wasn't really an initiation, but I proved the point. You know, hey, I went out did it. I mean, I went through all of LA and ripped every poster. I don't care who it was. Uncle Jam's on me, it didn't matter. I ripped them all. Right, because you guys
0: want to be the biggest, the baddest in town. Now, besides Ease After Dark, the Snooty Fox, where were some of the other haunts in LA that was playing early
1: hip hop at the time? Um well, we was the really the only club for teenage. Uncle Jam Army just did dances, maybe once a month, maybe every other month or something like that. Then they end up having a club called the PlayPen. I don't think it was there that long. I don't know. But we had a club for a few years. So we were the most stable out of all the little, you know, DJ crews or whatever you want to call them. So it wasn't too many. You know, there were dances, but it wasn't too many not teenage clubs. I think we was the only one.
0: Mm -hmm. And... I didn't realize this until I saw the United States documentary and you were talking about how world on wheels. And I believe it's another skating. It was another skating spot in LA, I believe skate land, Skateland
1: That was close to us. That was around the corner from where we was.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: Eve after dark and later was the penthouse, the same club. Once we left the penthouse, it closed down. They didn't let us, you know, rent it no more. Then that's when we started doing stuff at skate land. Right. Which was on central right around the corner.
0: Right. And I didn't realize how big of a deal skating was out there. And then also with the whole situation with Crips, Bloods, and how they had to say, hey, nope, no colors here. We we're gonna be about peace so that everybody can skate in peace and not to worry about no violence or any stupid stuff tonight.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, like me, I was from a blue neighborhood, but the even as the dark was in a red neighborhood. So, you know. I guess I had a pass or something. I don't know, but and that's how, I, you know, it just, the colors, thing, you know, in them days, it was kind of early for the games. They was there, but they didn't take over the city or nothing like that. It wasn't like that. Maybe later to, like, when colors came out or, what you know, the movie colors and stuff, you know, later on in the 80s. But in them early 80s, yeah, there were some games, but they was very small. Mm-hmm. And prior to 1580 K-Day,
0: were there some other stations that were playing hip-hop underground prior to 1580 K-Day? Or was 1580 K-Day the only game in town at that time before all the major stations started to pick up hip-hop?
1: No, it was um, it was one on 1230 AM called The Cat. It wasn't hip-hop, but it was just, I would say R&B. And I don't know if, I can't remember if they played hip-hop or not. K-Day was really, the only one playing hip hop that I, that I know of that was the only one. Mm, now, were you all
0: hearing a lot of rec hip hop records that were coming out of the Bay area at that time? Or was it just exclusively everything that was coming out of South central and you really weren't checking for anything that were coming out of the Bay area independently?
1: No, nah, it was just us, you know, in the city. We didn't know nothing about the Bay area to NWA started and we started doing, you know, the small shows, promo shows, and we went up north and we, we seen two short. You know, he was rocking at a heavy metal club. You know, so that's the first time we heard up north music, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now,
0: fast forward a little bit, NWA, Roofless, you guys going down to McCola, getting your records pressed up, put out. And when Boys in the Hood came out, I believe the legend goes, and you could correct me on this if I'm if I'm wrong, that um it was originally intended to be recorded for a group based out of New York, but because the slang felt very West Coast heavy, it wouldn't come across as authentic. And that's how
1: easy got to cut boys in the hood. Is that true? Yeah, I think it's that's pretty close. Yeah, the, the group was called HBO. Yeah, they were out of New York and it it just wasn't their style. You know, New York had that run DMC, that ll you know that totally different sound from us and that was the the break really for us was that e you know dre got e to do it you know it was hard to do i'm quite sure because i was working at the time because in the record crew we wasn't making no money so that's why dre went to that to start doing that but the hbo crew didn't want to do it so boom he was there And he wasn't a rapper, not at all. So, but he had the sound and he had the look. Mm -hmm. Look was very
0: distinctive with the glasses, the hat, the voice, very distinctive. And I am curious to know, was Boys in the Hood, like the beat and everything, was that kind of inspired by Ice-T's six in the morning?
1: It it sounds a little, it kind of, it's in that family because the six of the morning was not exactly, but it was kind of in that rhythm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, back up to world-class wrecking crew. Surgery, lovers, turn off the lights, which I first came to encounter with when I heard Masterpiece sample it for Ice Cream Man. When I went back mm-hmm. and listened to, to lovers. The original. Turn, <laughs> yes, sir, and turn off the lights. I'm hearing Michelle A, and I was like, yo. She well, Michelle
1: A was only on "Turn Off the Lights." It
0: mm-hmm.
1: was a lady, a singer called Mona Lisa was on the original one, "Lovers." That was the first one, and then we did the epic album, Mona Lisa sang, and then when "Turn Off the Lights" came, this was right before we left. We wanted Mona Lisa to sing the part.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It wasn't for Michelle A to sing, but we couldn't find her.
0: Wow! And and look at that. that. Another thing happened.
1: We could find it, so she ended up doing the part. <laughs> wow. So was this
0: after Boys and Hood took off with Easy and everybody doing there? It was at
1: the same time. We did turn off the lights. We did not perform live. We didn't perform. As soon as it came out, we was gone. And then that's when the song blew up. We weren't even in the record crew no more. Mm-hmm. We had yeah. already, you know, it already started over here.
0: Mm-hmm. and can we talk about Arabian Prince in DLC oh yeah Arabian
1: Prince see Arabian Prince was a solo artist and then in the early days you know of the 12 inches and a couple of EPs maybe EPs Arabian was around Arabian was around for the fast songs so by the time we got to Straight of Compton the album Arabian was already back doing solo we had pulled something to dance to from the old single and put it on the album. It wasn't just made for straight out of company. It was already made. So we pulled that and put that on the album. And, and in the when we took that picture, the, the six on the picture, that picture was early, you know, kind of early, you know, a while before that album came out. And that wasn't the album cover picture. It was another picture they wanted to use but they end up using that picture right there. Wow. And the cover
0: of Strada Compton, very iconic. Now, D.O.C., I believe he was originally from Dallas. He was a part of the Feel of Fresh crew. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. D- yeah, he was from Dallas. Country boy, <laughs> Real country. But we had met him during the Wrecking Crew days. Dre had met him when we went out there and did a show or something, and Dre had met him. And then he ended up coming down, then he started, you know, writing some of the lyrics for E. But E liked the way the DLC wrote because it was a totally different, you know, it was smooth the way he did it. I mean, he just liked the way he wrote, you know. Yeah, he did the cube writing and the Ren writing, but he liked the way the DLC wrote. Mm -hmm. Now, when NWA came together,
0: how hard or easy was it for everybody to figure out what their role was in the group? Okay, Cube, you're this. Okay, Dre, you're this, you're this, Ren, you're this, Easy, you're this, and come together as a cohesive unit when making Stroud of Compton. And how long did it take the recording process for Stroud of Compton?
1: Well, to make that album, it took 30 days, less than 30 days to make Stroud of Compton. And The group just, once, I remember being, I remember I was working towards the end of the Wrecking Crew and Dre came and asked me, they had already done Boys in the Hood, they made it already. And he said, we're going to make this super group. And do you want to come? I said, yeah. You know, me, him from the Wrecking Crew, then Q from CIA, and then Arabian from his solo stuff, and then E and Ren. So we just combined like a super group. But by the time we started making the Straight Outta Compton album, Arabian Prince had already gone, but, and it only took yet yeah, a month to make Straight come. That's all it took. It wasn't hard because we didn't make demos and stuff like that to go home and listen to them. Everything was done in the studio, like a song, a day and stuff. It was just done right there in the studio. The tracks was made, everybody write their parts. He didn't write his parts, but whoever wrote his song, and it was done right there. Yeah, and this was back in the days, people where
0: money literally was time because studio time was not cheap.
1: Yeah. yeah, it wasn't everybody could put it on their computer or do it, you know, reasons and all this. Nah, we had to do everything from scratch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everything.
0: So so the process for writing and producing was where everyone was kind of going off in the corners to write or was everybody Mainly yeah. in the studio, vibing
1: cohesively and say, "Oh, this sounds good. This sounds good. Let's go nah, ahead and cut it." It was just, just me and Dre in the recording part. You know, everybody once the track was done, you know, like I, like I tell, like I said in the book, when you walk in the studio, what do you see? You see me on the board, Dre down there on the drum machine, and everybody in their corners writing. You know, wherever they are in in this room or wherever, you know, writing. That's how. That's how it was done most of the time. Right. And to think about it, when of
0: Compton dropped, this was without no airplay from MTV, because I believe they wouldn't even play of Compton.
1: Yeah, it got banned. We spent the hundred thousand dollars on that video. And that was a lot for back then in 1989 for a video and it got banned. But that was one of the best things happened was them banning the video. Yeah, because you tell
0: people you can't have it, it makes you want oh, it yeah. even they more. Oh, yeah, they don't get it. <laughs> yeah, and then another thing I want to mention, too, they did a 30 for 30 called Strata LA, and how you guys were really rocking heavy the Raiders gear, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. everybody from Middle America to the Dirty South wanted to rock Raiders gear because you yeah. all had to put on the Raiders hat, Raiders shirt, Raiders jacket, and Al Davis
1: Come on, y'all gotta, y'all gotta get some residuals for that. <laughs> he should have been paying us. He should have been paying us for all. But think about this: the LA Kings' colors was purple and gold, like the Lakers. They changed theirs to black and silver. <laughs> and then think about all the sports now. Somewhere in their uniforms or alternate jerseys. There's black. Almost all the teams got some kind of black uniform. Something. We it just and we didn't even try to do it. We just dressed the way we dress and it just caught on and just it just wow was gone right and it's also crazy to think about
0: how what was going on in hip-hop at that time with you all doc's album getting ready to drop hammer too short all the acts on the west coast and how you all were breaking through nationally and saying hey we got something to say too we respect new york but we get our own thing going on over here and you're going to pay attention to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, because we were the first to break through to New York. We was like, you know, New York didn't accept nobody. We were the ones that break through because I remember us doing the Apollo and they didn't boo us. But You know, it looked like they wanted to shoot us. You know, we we from the West, Coast. they don't know, you know, New York is hard, <laughs> but we broke through New York. We broke through. Mm-hmm. And then after that, all the West Coast came in. Right.
0: So around the time of Compton being worked on, were you all working on D.O.C.'s album concurrently or was it separately after of Compton in the tour that D.O.C.'s album
1: was being made? We finished Strader Compton on a Friday. The men and Dre lived together. On Monday, he said, Hey, I'm going go to go in the studio and do Doc's album. I looked at him like, nah, I'm good. I don't want to go. <laughs> so I said, nope. And he went and done it. And Doc, Doc album done. But remember, by this time, we had already produced Easy's album, the Easy does It album. We had already produced our first gold single and first gold album with J.J. Fad already before the Straight out Compton. Wow and J.J.
0: Fast Supersonic, I mean, Ruthless was on fire. And then, of course, Michelle A's album, like everything Ruthless was touching
1: was turning even gold or platinum. It was, we was the new Motown. We was the new young Motown. And the, this was the span of Ruthless. It was only four years. about Just about four, four, maybe four and a half. But that's all it was. But it was hit after hit, after hit, after, you know, it just kept on going. Didn't yeah. stop. No, can't stop, won't stop, which
0: is so crazy. And then, like I mentioned earlier, Hammer, Too Short, and it was just oh, yeah. a great time for the West. Now, about the tour, were there some stops where you feel like, okay, we really got to be tight on our show because we don't know how this market is going to receive us because it's still kind of in that regionality where West Coast, hmm, I don't know. Well, you know something?
1: Nowhere. because we. That's one thing about coming from the wrecking crew me and Dre and on that. We love to perform. That's our thing, so we made a tight show, and our opening night of the tour was in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm thinking, Nashville, what's in Nashville? It was sold out. I mean, even in Philadelphia, sold out you know we 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 were just different from everybody i guess i mean we were we were just we were the hot we were the hot kids on the block that's what we was
0: mm-hmm. you guys weren't taking no prisoners and anybody else didn't want to step to y'all in the words of
1: parliament funkadelic let's take it to the stage <laughs> oh yeah we was we were just doing our thing and I me mean, you know hit after hit you know but we only did the one tour that which is crazy is this the one 40 dates, 40 cities, that was it. That was Mm -hmm. all.
0: Right, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the classic record that is still relevant to this day given the light of everything that's going on in this country, blank the police and how it is still impactful 30 plus years later. So can you talk about the making of that and how it is still relevant to this day given what's going on currently? I mean, think about this.
1: We didn't create the song. That problem was going on 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, way before us. We just had the, I don't know what you want to say, but we just had, we was bold enough to say what everybody at that time wanted to say. Back then, you couldn't say after police or put a finger up in front of police. That don't happen. Nowadays, they do it 30 years later. They write in the cop's face. But we just did something that that we've seen happen. See what we rapped about? We opened our front door. That's what we rapped about. The streets. We didn't rap about New York. We didn't rap about Disneyland, Washington D.C. We ain't never been. So we only rapped about what we knew, and in our neighborhood, which is a ghetto in every state, every city, that's what the police was, and they still doing it today. So. That song was 30 years ahead of itself, seemed like it. It -hmm. was strong then, and it's even stronger now. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Like Chuck D, Public Enemy said, rap is the
0: CNN of what's going on in the streets, blank the police, fight the power. Very powerful, oh, yeah. impactful records to this day. You kind of heard early inklings of it early on with Toddy T's Battering Ram. Yeah, then Badder even Ram. Oh, back, yeah. Captain Rap, Bad Times, I Can't Stand It, which was the yeah, early yeah. record that was produced by Jimmy Jam Terry
1: Lewis. No, you're right. I forgot all about that. I really, you know, something I really didn't know that wasn't really. Y- yes, sir. It was I remember one bad of those- time.
0: I remember yes, that. Sir. <laughs> y- yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's definitely one of those first records by Jam and Lewis and before they worked with a lot of the taboo records with uh, Mr. Clarence Mm -hmm. Avon so can we talk about the mindset from you all where it's like okay Strider Compton hit we got them where we want them and we go back in the studio to make E feel for zaggin.
1: um well remember Q left right Mm -hmm. the end of the tour so that was he was done with that and then the thing was People was concerned, can they come back? You know, because the cube was one third of the voice. Ren EQ. That was the voice. Dre only did one song on the straight out of Compton album, Express Yourself. And on um of Discretion Advise, he did a verse. That's it. That's all the rapping he really did. Compton and the house, him and Ren. But so the people the, like, how was we gonna come back? And what we came back with hundred miles and running, EP. So we came back strong after Police Part Two. You know, we came back strong. And then by the time we got to the, the last album, we had grew up production wise. We It's a totally better produced album than Straight Out of Compton by far, hands down. But Straight Out of Compton was just original. And it's hard to top that one.
0: Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. And a lot of West Coast records, especially during that time period, very heavy on Parliament, Zap, a lot of the funk samples. So what do you think contributed to the heavy use of those funk samples? Because that was kind of like the birth of what would later become known as the G-Funk era.
1: I mean, to me, what we did, because we used samples so much of the first album, they came and hit us with lawsuits about them samples. So when it came down to the last album, we didn't use no samples. You know, we just brought in more musicians to play, to play the parts we wanted to do and all that stuff. So that's how I grew up to more musical and stuff. You know, more live bass and keyboards and all kinds of guitars and stuff like that. And that was just that was just the birth right there. You know above the law they had the same kind of sound as us so it was just it was all being grown like a seed being watered right then until Dre left and then that sound came
0: mm, and you mentioned in your book nasty nest now nasty nest for those of you that don't know i had the pleasure of interviewing out of seattle and sir mix a lot yeah. sir mix a lot yeah. people for those of you that don't know. More than just Baby Get Back and Put Them on the Glass. My Posse's yeah. on Broadway, My yep. hoopty and Beepers. <laughs> so can we talk about Nasty, Nasty, Nasty Sir Mix-A-Lot, and how Seattle, I think, gets a bad rapper only being known for grunge and everything to come out of that, but they have a vibrant hip hop scene up in the Pacific Northwest.
1: I mean, they was cool. I, I, I used to like them. <laughs> you know, we did shows together. We even did the Fresh Fest together in London. You know, and we was still the wrecking crew when we did that, part of the wrecking crew still. And Nasty nest, all of them, Nasty nest mix a lot. And then I forgot his other guy that used to be with him. I forgot his name, but we used to go up there and do shows all the time up north. Only thing about it, I hate it because it rained so much up north. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, but the crazy
0: thing about music back in that era was that not hip hop, R&B and pop, we're all meshing at the same time because I believe New Kids on the Block did some tour dates with some of the early rap acts and really, of course, made their bare bones in R and B before pop really took over. More than especially Donnie. Donnie was the resident hip hop head of New Kids. I mean, it just
1: back then was a different style of music. You think about this: you hear a song, you know exactly what camp it came from. Nobody sounded the same. You know, it was groups back then, not just solo or very few solo ll. Not even Eric B right. He was solo, but it was Eric B and Rakim. So it was everybody had their own sound back then. You know where it came from. Whether it was mixed a lot and them too short, you just know where it came from. I mean, it just that was the golden era of music for hip-hop, it was. Mm-hmm. That was the time. People wish they could have been there in them days.
0: I, I agree. And as uh, far as with the early production, this was right around when sample time was very limited. So you had to do a lot of manipulation of the machines in order to get more sampling time. So did you find yourself having to put a record on the needle, put it on 45 or 78 in order to trick the MPC or whatever machine to get more sample time?
1: Well, we used the SP, SPs. We used the the NWA days was the 1200, and the Wrecking Crew days was the 12. The 12 only had five seconds sample time. That was it. And the 1200 doubled and went to 10 seconds. So we used to speed it up, not on 45, but we had speed it up. The three, about four parts we always sample. we Then once we get into the machine, we just slow it back down then that's how it got that dirty, groungy. Only the 1200 got that dirty sound like that. No other drum machine. I don't know why. That's the only one that got that real gritty, dirty sound. But it was analog. Analog is just so much better than digital. Yeah, digital, you can record it louder, but analog has fatter bass. And it's hard. Even Dre, when I talked to Dre year, you know, a couple of years ago about that, going from digital, from analog to digital. It took them a long time. Digital is just not the same. But back then, man, (laughs) that sound was something
0: else. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. Everybody's still trying to replicate it to this day. But one label, I believe they were out of the West Coast, you correct me on this, that I think don't really get enough credit for their run was Delicious Vinyl.
1: Oh, Delicious, wow. I heard that name in a while. What did they have? Who did they have? Delicious. Um, I believe Tone Loke was on Delicious Vinyl. Tone Loke. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Tone Loke was cool. I like Tone Loke. Them, uh, Delicious Vinyl. Wow. Yeah. They, not too many people mentioned that. You're right. Yeah, they, they really do. definitely.
0: Yeah, they really had a strong impact. And what I think was very smart with what they did with Tone Loke was for his biggest records, Wild Thing and Funky Cold Medina, to put rock uh-huh. samples in there in order to get it popping rock airplay. Wild Thing sampled Jamie's Crime by Van Halen and Funky yeah. Cold Medina sampled Hot Blooded by Foreigner.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was the heavyweight rock groups back then. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that was just, whoever produced this stuff just was smart. You know, like Run DMC, MC, you know, used the uh, their guy. Not the stones, but the uh, the other ones that look like the stones.
0: Mm. So after and, you know e- with the
1: with the rock sound.
0: hmm Definitely a match made in heaven because rock and rap are more similar than they are yeah. different. Mm. So after E Field, you know, Cube go solo, put out his project. Dre starts working on his project. Did you hear anything before the chronic became the chronic or inklings of Warren G before G Funk? And Regulate and Two One Three and Nate Dogg and all of that. No,
1: not at all. I mean, once the group—I wouldn't say breakup because it wasn't a breakup. It just dissolved. You know, once Dre left, and it just—you know—it's a totally different thing. Then I mean, but it just, yeah, wow. The Warren G, Warren you—you know—that's Dre's half brother. He used to come to the studio all the time. He had glasses on with the piece of tape, looked like Clark Kent all the time. <laughs> he would come just hang out. This was during the last album. He would just come hang out. Wow.
0: Yeah, because I remember being seven, six, eight years old watching MTV BT, seeing NWA videos, Dre videos, Warren G, mm-hmm. Snoop, and how you all, Cube, and how you all were. My introduction to what life was like on the West Coast. And then later, mm-hmm. Boys in the Hood and Minister yeah. Society. And I thought, man, yeah. California's beautiful with the palm trees, <laughs> the low riders, and the music just really brought yeah. that laid-back feel of what you thought the West Coast was like had you never traveled there.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, then you know, that's the West Coast sound is just totally different. Even today, it's still separate from all other ones. It's just, it's just got its own sound, own rhythm. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's just totally different to me, even mm-hmm. from, from uh, bone thugs up in Cleveland or somebody down in Texas, you know, it's just totally different sound.
0: Mm, now, Even
1: from now down South where we are compared to up North, it's totally different you know, Mm -hmm. with the E-40s and all that. It's totally different music up there.
0: Two shorts,
1: totally different. Yeah, definitely a different
0: vibe even in your own state, you know, and everything that was coming out of the West was going gold or platinum. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And when Snoop came out first, it was deep cover, and then that later set him up with his cameo on number, the G thing, and then that yeah. further wet everybody's appetite for the anticipation of Doggy Style that came out, I believe, 93. So, mm-hmm. with all of that happening, The Chronic released in 92, Doggy Style released a year later, and how, like, man, you all changed the landscape of, of music. What do you have to say about that?
1: Oh, I mean, it was still the West Coast sound, you know. It just the West Coast never died, you know. People might have thought it might have just came in for a second, but, but it just kept going and kept going, you know. It got it's just it's, it's then Bone Thugs came. That's a totally different sound, but it's it's kind of West Coast, but it's not because they're from Cleveland. But it's man. That sound, once it came, it was it. It it took over. It it took over music. It really did. And I didn't know about the story of For the Love
0: of Money that you wrote Mm -hmm. in the book. And now, what was your thought when you first heard Bone Thugs? And then you think like, "Mm, hmm, this may work or it may be
1: too far ahead of the curve
0: by them coming from the Midwest?
1: Well, when I met them, you know, I met them first. I sent them over to eat, you know, go over there to that guy right there. He'll listen to you. Cause they came up rapping and singing. I'm like, what, what is this? You know, you never would have thought that would have been a record just that style. But they remind me of us. We came out totally different. They came out totally different. I mean, they, they were something else that, that style just, Went to the top real quick.
0: Mm, it definitely did. Crossroads,
1: big hit, and with the
0: whole singing and rapping melodic style that's going on now, Bone Thugs yeah. really was
1: pioneering that. Oh yeah, they started that. I mean, that was that was their sound. Not saying that nobody ever done it before, but they, it just, it caught on. It just caught on. I mean. And then, and, you know, people start biting and biting and biting it, you know, but it's nothing like the originals. It's, it's nothing like the original. That's why the originals can stand away from the crowd. And they mm-hmm. came out different. The Run DMC, Sugar Hill game, they was all original. They came out different from everybody. Right. Originality
0: was celebrated and biting was not tolerated. Now, I want to yeah. talk about one person that Music heads know if you are a album credit reader, you know, you open up your insert and you read the credits and look at the back and see the credits. I want to talk about L.A. Dre.
1: Oh, L.A. Dre, yeah, (laughs) that's my, that was my boy. I mean, he was cool. He would come in and do keyboard parts for us in the studio. He went on the road on tour with us in 89 and stuff. So L.A. Dre was cool, I mean. He was real cool. He worked on a lot of the Michelle A album with Dre. And it just, I don't think L.A. Dre may not have got enough credit. I don't think he actually produced. I don't think so. But he was around, definitely around for a bunch of stuff
0: hmm Yeah, because I know he was in the 90s R&B group As one What up, Martin, Jeff, and Sean? And then I was reading back the credits on a lot of those early West Coast records. I'm like, this is the same L.A. Dre from As one <laughs> that did this, this, and this. And I want to go back to DOC and just talk about how classic that album was, top to bottom. You could play it from front to back, and it still sounds good. The skits, the intros, yeah. the, the ending. I mean, that album, to me, top
1: five. Well, he was about to take over the solo artists. He was going to be the number one guy if he didn't have that accident. Because he was just, his style was just so smooth, so different, you know, just like us. We came out different, Bone came out different. He was just different from everybody. And his writing skills, you know, even to today, it was great. You know, he wrote a lot of easies later, you know, for the second album, for the EP and some of the Straight out of Compton, some of the verse. I mean, he wrote a lot. And he, that album just took off. I mean, it just, he was finna be the next LL and stuff. He, he was about to knock LL off. Easily. But the accident, unfortunately, you know, can't rap no more. But his pen was still working, though.
0: Mm-hmm. And we mentioned J.J. Fad earlier, Supersonic, big record. And you stated in the book, I believe, that there was a three-year gap in between their yeah. debut album and the follow-up. So what was the reasoning behind the three-year gap with Supersonic being such a big hit and not really capitalizing on it maybe a year or so after when Supersonic was at its peak?
1: You know something? I don't know what the problem. We was, we was doing so much, because after we did that, then the easy does it. Then straight out of content, you know, we just kept going. And we didn't get back to that album. You know, they were still doing tour and stuff like that. They should have, they should have done an album six, seven months later, had it ready to go. But you know, them groups that do singles and get hot real quick, a lot of times there's only one album, unfortunately. You know, just one. And I'm not saying one hit wonders, but, you know, it just it hit Then you waited too long to come out for the next one. So when the second album came, me and Arabian did produce it, but it was it was too late already. It was way too late.
0: Mm -hmm. And who idea was it to come up with? We're all in the same game, which was pretty much anybody who was everybody out on the West Coast at that time. And it was. The West Coast version of what was going on on the East Coast was self-destruction.
1: I don't know. I, you know some. I have no idea whose idea was that, but I mean, it was cool. You know, it had, had a lot of people. I'm like, okay, Hammer and Tone Loke and, you know, Digital Underground. You know, it was a bunch of, you know, Humpty. You know, there was a bunch of people, but I don't know whose idea was it. You know, it was definitely came after the the East Coast one. That's for sure. It definitely came after that. What somebody should have did is put some kind of tour together with the East coast one and the West coast one. It did. That's what they should have did, but it never, I guess it never
0: happened. Right. And it was definitely mutual respect and love between different West and East acts. And I'm glad to see that now with, everybody embracing everybody because it's been documented and rehashed over and over. What went on between the two regions. We're not going to go into that. So you can look at all of the different reality shows and everything in regards to that, look at the Stroud of Compton film. So you can definitely get your background on all of that. But I want to talk about real quick Um, at this time, everybody was still looking at Southern hip hop as party rap, uncle Luke, booty music, but mm-hmm. then in 94, Outkast drops seven-player-listed music, but prior to that, you had everything that was coming out of Houston and rap a lot with Ghetto Boys and Memphis, with Big yeah. Ball and MJG. So what was your take when you first heard Southern Hip Hop and then thinking like, okay,
1: these guys really have I, something to say? I mean, I, I used to like the Ghetto Boys. I like the Ghetto Boys. I mean, the Ghetto Boys have a totally different style. And then, you know, once all these other groups came out, you know, just uh, sooner or later, the South had to come out, you know, it was the East and the West, then up North in California, then further up with Mix-a-Lot and stuff. So that that South had to come out. I mean, that South came out and they, they came out with their own style also. So it was just, that's how it was. Everybody doing their own thing. Luke from Florida—that's deep south, you know, the farthest south you can get from Florida. But you know, everybody just just did their thing. It just that's just how it was. Everybody held their ground from wherever they was, and there was no issues or nothing. It just they coming out with the music.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, going into your book, the one thing that really touched me about your book was you mm-hmm. sharing your testimony. Now, during your time with NWA,
1: did you feel God? working in you then? No. I never was looking for God. I didn't know nothing about it. I heard of Jesus. I heard of God from my mother and stuff, but that's it. Nobody ever came up and ministered to me. Nothing. But I know the group was blessed. That group was blessed. Yeah, we cussed words and all, but the group was blessed. Think about it. 30 years later, The group selling just as much as the beginning. That's almost impossible. You know, 30 years later, a movie, number one movie, Hall of Fame, all this stuff. So, but I did not know nothing about God. Nothing at all. I had no idea. Mm, So that moment hit
0: where it was like, okay, God, if it's really you, show me. What was it for you where you were like, I'm going to go all in. I don't care what nobody say. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to do according to your will.
1: That wasn't until I got saved when that happened, but up until 2010, it was all me, you know, doing what I want to do, whatever it was. I did what I want because I didn't know nothing. I didn't know you could even talk to God. I didn't know you could ask for it. You know, I didn't know nothing. But he wanted it like that. He let he allowed nobody to minister to me. Oh, you need to go to church. You need to stop sinning. Nobody ever said that to me all my life until 2010. And they still didn't say it. When I happened to meet the, my pastor, that's my pastor now. And it's just like he sat there and told me about my life, then told me what God's gonna do. He's gonna restore you and this and that and all that. And I was. At the time, I was homeless. Not on the street homeless, but homeless. And that—and I was homeless for three and a half years. But check, even when I was homeless, I wasn't looking for God. Because I didn't know nothing about him at all. But my testimony is to show, that's the reason for the book, to show how all this sin, all this I did in my life, he still loved me before I even knew him. He still did, just like everybody. He loved everybody first. And it's just amazing, you know? So once I went and got saved, okay, what you want me to do? That's it. I mean, I followed exactly what he did. And I have not looked back, and it's been almost nine years. I have not looked back one time, not once. That is that is beautiful. That's a testament to God's love. God's
0: grace, His mercy, because He can take you where you're at, meet you, and say, "Okay, I'm going to work with you, and you're going to go and do what's according to My will, not your will,
1: but but My will." Well, see, this is what I tell people all the time too. When I came, got saved. When you come to God after He touched you to come to Him, it's impossible for a person to just go to No, you can't, because he has to touch you to go. Because we already know Jesus is the only way through that door. It's a little door. So when, when I came to him, I didn't know you could have a plate in your hand. You know, most people c- come to God, they got a plate. It's full of food. Oh, God, can you bless these? Can you put some sugar on this? Can you do this? They want their stuff done. Me? I didn't even know you could have a plate. I came. He gave me a plate, and he put what he wanted on me. This is, I want you to get, I want you to go DJ. I want you to get married. I want you to do this, do this, do this. And I just, okay, I'm gonna do it. See, that's where a lot of us get messed up is they want God's blessing, but they want him him to bless what they doing, their ideas. No, what do you want me to do? That's the key. It's like, okay, I'm here. What you want me to do, God? He told me to get married. He gave me my wife's name. I got married. Within 10 months of being saved, that's it. He told me to DJ again. I never wanted to DJ. Me and Dre haven't DJ since 89, since the tour. We were just producers, not DJs. He gave me the, the thing to DJ and what happened? I've been to a hundred countries DJing in the past four years. Not because I thought it was a good idea, because he didn't, mm-hmm. I mean, he's amazing. Definitely I'm a definitely. firm believer because I'm saying what I know, even though I've read it, but I'm saying what I know personally.
0: Mm-hmm. And sometimes being blessed requires surrendering. Sometimes you're gonna have to give something up. You, you got have to. to drop you it got you to, to your
1: knees, bring it to yeah. your lowest low, yeah. in order for you. don't you to want him be to humble you. That's what he did to me. He had to humble me, and I was homeless. I had to be humble, get all that. Sin worked itself out, all of it. The girls, my sin was girls buying stuff. That was my sin. It wasn't drugs and alcohol. Nah, it was the women. But all that left me. And then when I was just there with nothing, you know, I never was, I never said, God, why are you doing this to me? I never said that at all during my three and a half years. Never have. Mm -hmm. He just cleaned me up, came and got me. You know why? Because everything I did I did adult movies for 15 years I was a hundred percent doing it the rap music I was a hundred percent the women I was a hundred percent that's what that's why when you see pimps and prostitutes be become evangelists and preachers because they was a hundred percent at what they do God loved a person with a whole heart towards him that's what he wants not the ones that's on the fence. Uh, should I go this way? He said, He don't like that on the fence. Pick a way, him or the devil. That's it. It ain't no other choice. You mm, can't <laughs> can be lukewarm with God. Now, you mentioned he, you. Hate it. <laughs> yeah, he hates it, he
0: hates folks who are lukewarm. Now, I want to back yeah. up for a minute. You talked about Warren G being around in the studio. Was Nate Dogg uh-huh. around during this point, or did, did you ever have any encounters with uh, Nate Dogg?
1: I never met him. I didn't know. Um, I don't think Warren wasn't even doing music. Warren would just come in to hang out in the studio. That's it. That's it. He would come. Dre would like, you know, Warren would come without a ride home. So Dre would have to take him home. But Dre didn't take him home. I was the one taking Warren home. Because they live, you know, right in Long Beach. So Warren wasn't even in the music, not even at all. I never would have thought Warren would have did music. Never.
0: So was it surprising when Regulate came out and became a big hit?
1: I mean, I was just like, that's Warren? (laughs) I'm like, Warren with the glasses, with the tape on it? (laughs) But, you know, I'm I'm glad for Warren, you know. I like Warren. I know him and their brother that passed away, you know, when we was on the tour, Dre's brother. I, I knew Tyree, you know, so. Oh yeah, I was glad for Warren, that was great. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, what were your thoughts on the release of Strada Compton and the legacy of NWA and how the lineage of West Coast hip hop went from world-class Wrecking crew, NWA, Cuban Dre solo, then you have everybody to come after that, your Snoops, your Games, Kendricks, then also we can also put 50 Cent and Eminem in that lineage M&M, as well because they were touched
1: cent, by I dre mean, yeah i mean you you think about this i told you somebody earlier in the interview you go back all the way to the wrecking crew days when me and dre looked at red DMC for the first time this was before music that egg was me and dre that seed rather. look what came from that seed not just including J.J. Fad, not including Eazy's album, not including Q, Dre, uh, then all these other birds, Snoops, Warrens. You know, you can name them. You can sit here and name a whole, whole bunch. It's just, and it goes all the way back to that. It wasn't no West Coast music at that moment when Run DMC came. There was none, none at all. Mm-hmm. and definitely, for sure, no beats by Dre either. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and um, once again, the book, Strata Compton, my told story. Tell the people where they can get it.
1: You can get it at Amazon, paperback, ebook, and then you can get the autograph copies, personal autographs, from my website, djyellowofinwa.com, and I mail them, I mail them all over the world. I just mail one to Bahrain, to Sweden just a day ago, you know, Australia, the UK, every, you know, all over. Definitely get them there.
0: And last question, I want to get you out of here on this. How have you felt the music industry has changed since world-class record crew to now, since you're having to deal with streaming and how you really have to be in front of everybody's face in order to somewhat be in the know because it's here today, gone today, you have social media and. Various other media outlets that you didn't necessarily have back in the day.
1: Um, it's amazing that hip hop is still around. You know, it's going to be that shows you that hip hop ain't going nowhere. But the you know, ours back then it was harder to do, but it was easier because it wasn't a lot of competition. It wasn't five hundred albums or singles or whatever. They don't even make albums no more. They're making singles or videos and TikTok and YouTube, you know, all this stuff. It's just a totally different world of music. You know, we had CDs, 45s, 12-inch albums, you know, whatever, what we had, a lot of different things, cassettes. Now they just stream, download, that's it. And plus, I, I say this to people a lot, they start giving away their music too much. Back then, we used to make a snippet. You know, when a new album come out, it's just a snippet. Ten seconds here, ten seconds. Now they're giving away albums. I'm like, once you give away the album, why would a person buy an album from you if you come out with another? They'll just wait for you to put it up on YouTube and they got another album. So it's good that the social media is here because it get around a lot. But it also kills you too. So you gotta. Nowadays, it seem like they make more albums, more songs. Think about us. We went to the Hall of Fame with two albums. That's all it was. Straight out of Compton, and the last album, there was no other albums. The NWA and the Posse was a. It was a compilation, you know, an old compilation. So nowadays, you just gotta, you know, some. Another thing is, nowadays, it's too easy to make songs now. Everybody can make a song. Everybody can have a video out. All you got to do is do TikTok, do YouTube, all this stuff. It's just, it's still selling. It's still making money. It's going to be there, but it's just a totally different market now. Totally different. Mm -hmm. No artist development.
0: No coming up, performing those small shows and building that buzz. so that By the time you're ready for the major leagues, they already know you and you know what to do. And I'm going to say yeah. this industry rule number 4,080. If you don't know, listen to a trial called quest. Definitely know your stuff. Ownership, copyright, ownership, copyright, ownership, yep. copyright. Listen to what Michael Jackson and Prince are trying to tell you own your stuff, own your stuff. I repeat, own your stuff. Trademark. The,
1: the publishing is the most important thing on the song. Publish it. Because if a movie want to use your music, they go who owns the publisher. <laughs> That's yep. the key. Get a lawyer. Have a lawyer.
0: Do Look over your paperwork. <laughs> mm, don't get no cousin or I know somebody that knows somebody. Get somebody yeah. that knows their stuff. <laughs> know what BMI, ASCAP, sound exchanges, and definitely know these streaming services and how much they're paying you per stream. Oh, yeah. Cause you don't wanna get jerked around and my money funny, because we don't want that to yeah. be seen. Too many stories of artists that that had that happen to. Now, any shout-outs you want to
1: give and also plug your social media. Oh well, my social media is Instagram, Facebook, is DJ Yellow of WA, and I'm answer and like the pictures, all that myself. I I I'm I really do my own stuff. I don't have nobody do it for me. So you know go out and get the book you know go out and get this book it's a you know people say it's a good read i never read a book before i never opened a book but they say it's a good read you know people say it's just like you talking to them and, and that's how i wanted it to be you know so can understand i even try to teach some people about lawyers and this what we did the mistakes we did the mistakes i did so And also listen to you all the time.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, sir. It's definitely a great read. Like LeVar Burton said, take a look. It's in a book. You don't have to take my word for it. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts. And also on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. Once again, it's been an honor. And thank all of you, yourself, Cube, Ren, Dre, Easy, Snoop, Game, everyone that played a big part of my childhood 90s hip hop west coast warren g nate Dog. thank you thank you thank you ladies and gentlemen the one the only mr rock and roll hall of famer legendary mr dj Yeller. thank you once again for coming on beyond the album cover thank you yes sir